turn to Genesis chapter 50, the final chapter in the very first book of the Bible. Several weeks ago, I, um, I went to the YMCA. I had to pick up my kids from swim lessons. And I don't know if the last time you've actually been around swimming lessons there, it's very interesting. They had them all broken up at the Y pool in all these different sections. And you can, you can tell where the beginners are, okay? I mean, they are like barnacles stuck to the side. and Every muscle in their body is just clinging there, you know? And this is probably the first time in their life they've ever been in the pool or in water without their little, you know, water wings and water floaties and a life vest, you know. And so they're clinging on for dear life. Class hasn't even started there. And, and you know, the teacher is beckoning them, you know, to come. And they're like, I am not letting go of this at all, you know. And there's crying and tears and great amounts of stress. And then, and then there's like this, this next group over, and um, it's the advanced beginners. And uh, it's still stress on the beginners. There, there is some semblance of a stroke. I mean, it looks like someone's drowning, but actually they are propelling forward. Their head's bobbing up. They're gasping for air. Their arms are flailing. Legs are kicking. And, the, and they're saying, oh, that is really good. Keep going. Okay. But really, they're just learning, and they're barely surviving. They're expending a terrific amount of energy. That's the reason why they're so hungry when they get out of the pool. They've left it all in the pool just to make that about five yards between the pool side and the instructor. And, and then, of course, you keep going in each section while they, they get better. I mean, you have some that are, I mean, like, that's a crawl stroke. I, I recognize that. And they're actually kind of going through water. And then, of course, Maybe at the far end, you've got these lanes, and the swim team is there. And these swimmers in the, on the swim team, they swim with amazing efficiency. I mean, every stroke is in sync. And they're just like gliding through the water. They're kind of like a speedboat. They're just kind of making their way. They make it look so easy that you actually think, I could do that, right? Okay? They're just, it's, it's fantastic. But you see, there's all these different progressions. And there's really some parallels between swimming lessons and the Christian life. You see, when we come to a point of brokenness in our life, we realize that indeed we were made for God, created to be in relationship with Him. We start to see the great indicators and the devastation of sin in our own life, our our offenses to God, our self-centeredness that leads to brokenness. It drives us to Jesus Christ. And at some point in our life, God desires that every person put their faith and their trust in Him And God draws them through Christ to begin a relationship with himself. And when you come to a place where you are turning from your sin and trusting Christ, you begin and enter life now as a Christian. It's kind of like entering the beginning of swimming lessons. And so, really, everybody starts at the side of the pool, clinging on. Some of you are are brand new Christians. And you're you're coming to the side of the pool. God God has started this relationship with you, with himself, and, and, you're, and you're broken. You're bleeding. Uh, there's been some traumatic events in your life, some of which you've brought on yourself. And there's others of you that are, are on the side of the pool, and, and you'd really like to swim like a dolphin, but you're fearful and afraid, and, and you really don't know, how, how do you actually do that? I mean, you see some of these older, mature Christians, and we have many of them in our church There is a joy, there is a confidence in Christ, there is a walk of faith, there is a trust in the Savior, there is is worship even in the midst of just real heartache in their life. And you're wondering, how? how do they get like that? How do they get to a point of maturity where they are able to move through life with such a joy and a confidence in Christ and a strong sense of worship? You know, I've asked myself that question. I don't want to be a guy like a barnacle on the side of the pool and never going anywhere. I... 
I want to be able to go into the deep end. I want to swim well. But life is hard and it's got challenges that keep making me think like it's a lot safer just hanging on to the side of the pool. But all of us want to truly grow in our confidence with God and have a walk with Him that truly is vibrant and full of faith. And we want to know know how in the world is that possible. And I'll tell you, the answer is found in the heart of Genesis 50. I'm so glad that we are all gathered together because this chapter shows us what transformation in a life with God looks like. It's found right here in the heart. And so we're going to take a look at it and see how God transforms us with his presence. As we've been making our way through this series, studying the life of Joseph, we are now at some of the final days. In fact, remember how we ended last week? Jacob, Joseph's father, has died. And he gave specific instructions. They are in Egypt, and Jacob has has passed away. He said, before I die, I want you to promise me, I swear to me, you will bury me in the promised land in Canaan. And he actually tells them exactly where, uh, where he, that little cave is, cave of Machpelah. He says, I want you to bury me there. Promise it to me. And with that, he dies. In chapter 1, verse 50, then Joseph just fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Such a great bond of love. You know, they had been separated those many years when the brothers had lied and said, looks like Joseph got eaten by the animals and now... At the final 17 years, God allows Joseph and Jacob to spend those final years together. And Joseph has such a great love for his father, and it's expressed right here in this scene. His dad takes his final breath. His son Joseph just falls on him and weeps, kisses him. And then Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, I wanted to point out something here. The the Egyptians, they're the ones that actually completely perfected the art of embalming. In fact, you can go to museums, there's traveling King Tut, and you're like, whoa, how in the world does he still exist like that? I mean, the guy's thousands of years old. They had perfected the art. But notice who Joseph calls. He doesn't call the mystics and their magicians. Those are the ones that usually did it. No, he calls the physicians. You see, Joseph is a believer in the one true God. He is not going to get caught up in any of the cultic behavior of Egypt. And hence, he's not calling the mystics and magicians and these guys to put on these masks like a wolf and they actually take out the organs and dry out the body. He's not, he's not, I'm not doing that. Okay? That's a false religion. I worship the one true God. And so he calls the physicians to embalm his father. So they do it. And verse 3, it says, Now 40 days were required for it. And that's how long this process took. And for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Now, there's something that you may not know, but once I point it out to you, you're going to like, whoa, this is significant. Do you know how long they would mourn a pharaoh that died in Egypt? 72 days. You see, what's happening here and what the early readers would know is that Jacob's is being, Jacob is being honored and mourned for like a king of Egypt. Two days shy of a pharaoh. This is a great honor. It's because Joseph was so highly esteemed in Egypt because of what God had done through him that Jacob, Joseph's father, is esteemed and given 70 days of mourning. And when those, verse 4, when the days of mourning were passed, 
Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die, and in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will return. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Remember, Jacob and all the brothers and their family, they all outset, that tribe of 70 came in, and they settled in the very best of the land of Egypt, the Goshen. But now Jacob is dead, and, and he has made that final request, Egypt is not my home. I want to be buried in the land of promise, where God has promised that one day there will be a land for my people, a nation, a nation of them, and that from this nation will come great blessing. I want to be buried there, not Egypt. He says that in Genesis 47. He made Joseph swear to me, do it. His final words are, go bury me in that cave at Machpelah. Now, now Joseph has to approach Pharaoh with this matter. He can't come across and say, you know, Egypt's just not good enough. Or, you know, what you've done these last 17 years was nice, but really we're not interested. And perhaps it's because Joseph himself is in mourning and he cannot go to the presence of Pharaoh in a state of mourning, he actually works through the officials to bring this message and saying, my father has requested to be buried in the land of Canaan. How will Pharaoh respond? Well, verse 6, you see it. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. And so Joseph, verse 7, went up to bury his father and with him they went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household And they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. They left the little ones and the flocks because they're going to come back, but everyone else goes. And notice what Pharaoh does. Verse 9, there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. It kind of looks like an early exodus. Here's a great retinue of, of chariots, of armed fighters, of Jacob, Jacob's family, and they're making their way to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. Now, here's something that's very interesting. Look at verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. Seven days is the traditional mourning period for the Jews. Now, they come to the side of the Jordan. In fact, where they are is they are on the east side of the Jordan and, and they are probably, they're probably crossing very close to where Jericho is. What in fact is taking place here is that this is a precursor of events to come. You see, remember that God, 400 years from now, is going to bring out his people, a nation of a couple million. They're going to wander through the wilderness. They're going to come on the east side of the Jordan and Joshua is going to lead them across. Well, that's, that's exactly what happens here with Jacob. Jacob's body is carried. They have this period of seven days of mourning, and then they're going to bring him across. And when they see this, this, this great lamentation, verse 11, now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did as he had charged them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had, Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron 
the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. You see, Jacob's, his final statement is, I am a man of faith. I believe God will fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, my father, and to me, that they will be a land, a nation, and a blessing. Just like as articulated in Genesis 12, I want to be there. Because, you see, the people of Israel saw that even when you passed away, you were still united with one great body of people in which God was, for, was fulfilling his purposes. It's like they're a, a living organism. It's just that you've gone on before. And so him being buried there is saying, this is where we will eventually be. Now, there's something that's going on in the heads of the brothers. Now, if you remember as we've gone through, or if you've read Genesis, that these brothers had been immensely cruel to Joseph. In fact, they had created great heartache in their life. Remember, remember the scene back all the way in Genesis 37? They actually said, hey, let's kill him. But then after they threw him in a pit, they decided, hey, well, let's not kill him. Let's make some money off him. They sold him, for, made a little bit of money, profit off the guy, and sold him into slavery in Egypt. Now, all of a sudden, their guilty consciences are going to kick in. They are seriously concerned What will Joseph do now that dad is dead and he's buried? Because they might be processing and thinking, okay, while dad was alive, Joseph wanted his dad to experience the best of life because he had had a hard life. And until those final 17 years, Joseph provided everything. We had the best of the land. And maybe Joseph was just putting on this show to allow his dad to experience the great joys of life in this final time. But now that he has passed away, Maybe now he is going to pay, and it's our time of reckoning. There's a great amount of guilt that is going on. It's kind of like um, maybe you've had a situation where, like, you did something wrong, you sinned against someone five or ten years ago, and you, you asked for forgiveness, they forgave you, but then, you know, they suddenly they, they bring it back. It's like, like maybe you've been married. You know, like, say you've been married for, like, ten years, and uh, then all of a sudden your spouse brings up something that happened when you were dating okay like oh, whoa and they and you said but hey wait i thought you forgave me of that yeah i did but you know what i take it back and, and then and they bring the surf they bring it back and all of a sudden you're dealing with that and you're like whoa whoa hey you need to know that's wrong okay when you have forgiven someone you need to clean and clear the slate and uh, yet that's what these boys are worried about you see Guilt has a way of lingering even when you know that you've been forgiven. You see, what's taking place here is there are these feelings of paranoia that are developing among the boys. And look at verse 15. You see, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? What if now is our time of reckoning. And to understand their fear, you need to, you need to understand a little bit about the human psyche and how it works. You see, people who have mistreated others, they actually, they actually think that others are like them. And they kind of put themselves in a position that we're going to be mistreated as well. It's kind of like uh, they could not accept the fact that Joseph could be gracious and forgiving and to let it go. They just, they couldn't do it. And let me tell you why they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because 
they demonstrated an attitude uh, that had basically says this. I could never forgive like that. Hence, you can't. You can you see this with people. Some people who are greedy, they always see people with the lens that oh, they're greedy like me. They never articulate it that way, but that's how they live. Or or lustful people that are just very lustful. They feed that lust. They feed it like a fire. They actually think others are just like them. Now, they never say it that way. In fact, they have all sorts of wrath, and they kind of pour it on people like, like you're bad, and they try, they're very condemning and oftentimes very judgmental, can be harsh, can be kind of controlling. You know what they're doing? They're, they are projecting their weakness upon others. Or just people that are mean. Okay, They're mean. They assume everyone else is like them. But Joseph is not like them. Joseph is God's man. And so they find themselves in this situation. What are we going to do? What if he's going to pay us back now? And so they concoct a plan. He says, verse 16, So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying this. Now this is good, okay? Thus you shall say to Joseph, this is what dad said, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You see, what they they did is they concocted a plan. There is nowhere in Scripture recorded that Jacob ever said this. And if Jacob was going to say, hey, Joseph, one thing I want to make clear before I die, forgive your brothers. Release them. If Jacob had that message, do you know who he talked to? Any wild guess? He talked to Joseph, right? I mean, they shared everything. Jacob even adopted his two boys as his own sons. If Jacob had that message, he most certainly wouldn't have passed it on to the boys and said, hey, by the way, when I die, make sure you pass this on to Joseph and do it through the servants. No, this is a, this is a plan. You see, they are operating on the principle of fear. And so they throw this out. And did you notice this? When, they re, when he receives that message... Did you see that? Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph is so heartbroken that his brothers don't understand grace. Even when they've seen it and experienced it for years, they don't get it. They think they still have to try to manipulate circumstances for their own supposed good. They don't understand grace. They don't understand God, and they certainly don't understand him and his motives. And so he's weeping. And finally, here come the boys. Look at this. Verse 18, Then his brothers also came, and they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Do you remember the dreams that Joseph had that got him in such hot water with his brothers? Remember? About socks bowing down, okay, that he is the center and eventually his family will bow down before him. You know, this happened on several occasions when he was second in command, and he still is, and the brothers didn't recognize him and they fell down at their, on their faces before him. But they didn't know that that was their brother. Now, in this final scene, they know this is Joseph, our brother, and they are fulfilling the dream that God had given, that you will fall down before your brother Joseph. And so they come down, they fall down before him, and they say, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, 
do not be afraid. Do you see that? Joseph is, is so mature. He is God's man that he has insight into the motives as to why they are doing what they're doing. You see, that, that comes with just years of just logging time with God, of spending time in prayer, of fully yielding your life daily, years after year after year. God gives you the ability to have insight and give you, gives you maturity that you can actually see the real motives behind the people of what they're doing. And he sees that they're operating under fear. That's why he says, do not be afraid. For he says, for am I in God's place? What he's doing is he's reorienting their attention back upon God. What are you boys doing? Am I a God? No, I'm not God. You're, you, what you have to be concerned about is, is not me. You need to be concerned about God. God is the judge. And it is... It's really, it is so good that God is the judge. One of the things that we know about God is that he is omniscient. It's, that is a fancy word that means that God knows all things. You and I, we would be terrible judges, wouldn't we? You know why? Because we are so emotional, even though we try to hold it all in, right? We just make all sorts of emotional, impulsive decisions. For instance, if, if we were judges, uh, think about it. You're driving and someone cuts you off. All right, guys, some of you gals, I've seen you on the highway, okay? What is your instant reaction? And if you were the judge, what would you think? That's it, death penalty, off of their head, right? You know what I'm saying? Because, and and you're like, whoo, and someone riding the car, like, what are you doing there? You know, that seems awful, just like impulsive on your part. Well, they didn't use their blinker, and they're, they're driving a smart car. They should know better, right? And so you just kind of make out these rash judgments, because we operate on emotion. And second of all, we don't hardly know any of the facts. Maybe the person cuts you off because they are trying to get their way to the hospital with their kid that's sick or injured. You have no idea what's going on. And yet, we are so quick to make rash judgments. Not God. God is absolutely impartial. He sees all things. He knows every detail. He knows everything that is going on in your head. He knows your motives. He knows really why you're doing. He knows all the little lies and your little white lies that you throw out. He knows what you've really done with his son. If you're really trusting him or you're done doing some sort of little religious game or you're like, you say, oh, yeah, I like Jesus and I'll show up at church every once in a while and you have God on your terms versus the other way around. He knows all about it. He knows if you despise him. He knows if you've rejected him. He knows if you've spurned him. He knows all things and he is an impartial judge. And what Joseph is saying, hey, wait, I'm not your judge. He says, We need to be looking to God. For am I in God's place? And then he is going to give probably the best statement on the goodness and the sovereignty of God that you find in the Bible. You might want to highlight or underline or certainly put a star by verse 20. It stands out in Scripture. It is like the bold final proclamation of the book of Genesis. And listen to what Joseph said. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph says, you, what you did, it was 
evil. It was wrong. He doesn't slide it under the carpet. He's like, oh, it wasn't any big deal. Absolutely, what you did was completely wicked, unrighteous, wrong. It was evil. When you threw me into a pit, when you despised me, when you wanted to kill me, when you drugged me up and gave me some sort of false hope that, okay, this was all just some big gag and I'll get over it about three years from now, and then you sold me into slavery. And my final glancing look at you as I was chained up or hauled off was to see you boys flipping that silver in your hand and say, hey, we're going to eat tonight, boys. And I looked back and I had tears because you separated me from everything I love, my father, my family, my land, and I got hauled into Egypt as a slave. What you did was wrong. It was evil. And as a slave, then I was sold again. And I started off at the bottom of the rung. And God was gracious, but then... I was falsely accused of rape. I was running from a bad situation. I was fleeing temptation. And that landed me in prison for the next 10 years. There to rot. What you did, it absolutely was evil. And friends, if you've been maligned, mistreated, hurt by someone, whether someone said, oh yeah, I'm with you until the day I die, and some prettier face walked by about 12 years later and they left you, Or somebody said, I am going to help you with this situation. They've abandoned you. We've all had situations where, in some degree where people have said, I am so for you and I'm with you. And then they've just kind of cut and moved on to some other dog and pony show. And it hurts us and it devastates us. And frankly, some of the things that have been done to us are evil. You need to know that Joseph can identify with you. He says, you, what you did, you meant it. For evil. But listen to what else he says. He says, but God, but God meant it for good. God meant what you did for good. You see, this is kind of how it works. God allows for people to perpetuate even evil activity to do what is absolutely wicked and is wrong. Painful, hurt, abuse. Sometimes death, and yet in God's greater purposes, he is bringing about his perfect will. He is so in control that he, he allows even the free decisions of men to eventually and actually accomplish his perfect will. Now, we can't completely understand that, but Joseph had a real good grasp, and so can we if we see how he actually processes life. He says, what you did to me, You intended for evil. You intended to malign me. You intended for my destruction. But God actually used it and and used what you did to accomplish his good. You see, you sold me into prison as a slave, but as a slave, that eventually brought me to a place where I actually learned how to manage because I was learning how to manage Potiphar's, all his goods, all his crops, all his people. And that, 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 yes, it put me into prison. And I had no idea why I was in prison. I was serving faithfully. God was with me. And God was with me even in the prison. And yet, it was from the prison that God actually allowed me to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And I was raised to the point of second in command of Egypt. And you see, there was a purpose in all that. God's purpose. And the purpose was this. To preserve your life and the life of literally millions of people. 
by actually, remember they were saving 20% of their crop each year so they had food enough to get through the famine? You see, what you did was evil. But God is so good and so sovereign that he used even that evil to accomplish his perfect good and preserving your life and the lives of millions of people. You see, he's telling them, boys, I have a ministry. Remember, Pharaoh changed my name to Zaphonath Paneah. That's what people called him. We, we always say Joseph. But he was known to all the Egyptians as Zaphonath Paneah. God lives and he speaks. You see, God gave him a ministry out of the difficulty of his life. Everywhere Joseph went, it was a testimony that God, the one true God, is alive and well and is at work. And you see, what happens is he allows his theology to affect his attitudes and his actions. And friends, that's where we need to be as well. Joseph understood life from God's perspective. And that is one of the primary purposes of the scripture is so that we see life from God's perspective. You see, in all things, he had learned that somehow God was working out his good. Now, let's, let's kind of rewind the tape. How about when you're a slave? God, how in the world does this work? It is painful. You don't do something right? What? You probably got beat. How does that work? How is this working out for God's good? You are a nothing. You don't even count. You're not even a statistic. Your life doesn't matter. Or then when you're in prison, you're just rotting away. God, what is that? How, how does that work? Friends, you and I have experience in our life where we're like, I'm stuck. Life seems hard, meaningless at times. What do we do? This is where our faith kicks in. We trust that God is good and he is accomplishing his purposes even when we don't see it and certainly we're not feeling it. Are we not there? Some of you, I know, right now, this is perhaps one of the hardest seasons of your life. And you don't see how God is good and how he's going to work this out for his glory and greatness and goodness. What do we do? Just hold on to Jesus and we keep believing in his goodness and his promises. You see, he had tried to show this to him, his brothers, when when he actually disclosed himself to him. Remember in Genesis 45, verse 5, he said, Mary said, I'm Joseph. And they're like, ah, what? How could that be? Uh, we, we thought you were dead. Remember in Genesis 45, verse 5, he says, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me. You sold me into slavery. That was flat out wicked and evil. But God actually sent me to preserve life. Or in verse 7 in chapter 45, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. We don't know the intricacies of how it all works, but God even allows and works through the evil actions of people to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. This isn't saying that, uh, well, bad things happen, and so God's like, hmm, how can I make something good happen out of this? It's not saying that. It's saying that God was working even through the evil actions of those people. And so we see Joseph here. He knows that giving the boys a lecture or some sort of little moralizing story or lording over them, they'll never learn. What he wants to do is connect them with God. And so that's what he's doing. And you need to know something. Ministry oftentimes comes out of pain and brokenness. Ministry comes out of 
pain and brokenness. It did for Joseph. He was broken beyond belief. And yet it was from this place of brokenness and pain that God has given him this significant ministry. Some of you are experiencing brokenness in your marriage relationship, your finances, your work, maybe one of your kids, some friendship, something going on in your family. You see, it's in these experiences, as we go through them and as God heals us, we come to a point where we have strength where we didn't have before. It's unpleasant, and I've, I've done this several times. Unfortunately, in my life, we're, like I've had broken bones, okay? I spent like a quarter of my childhood in a cast, okay? So it's very traumatic for my parents, I'm sure. When you break a bone, after it's set, okay, God has a healing process that takes place in your life. And you know what? It actually becomes stronger because, it's, you know, that bone is just growing and continues to develop in that healing process. And what we need to do with the brokenness of our life is like, God, I'm broken. I have a broken heart. I have broken dreams. My mind, it's not working like it once was. It's broken. And we come and we ask God for his healing. And as we release ourselves to God and experience the healing from the great physician, he gives us strength, strength beyond what we had before this ever happened. You see, we give this to God and say, Lord, use this somehow for your good. You release everything you have to God and allow him to heal you. Stop hiding your pain as if you could. And just say, God, I don't get it. I understand why this happened to me, but I give it to you. And I ask for your healing. I ask for strength. You know, we think like oftentimes it's just we, we praise God because life is wonderful. And sometimes life is really wonderful. But a lot of times life isn't so wonderful. It's hard. It's broken. It's difficult. We're confused. When we praise God in the midst of our pain, that is deep worship. And what it does to the non-believer, when they see you rejoicing in God, even with the difficulties in your life, it sends a message that God is so powerful that he can bring about worship in the lives of his people, even when they're devastated and broken. So that's what we do. See, it's in our brokenness that we experience God's healing. He gives us depth. He gives us an ability to have a real ministry. And let me tell you this. The alternative to what we're talking about, if you will not go to God and see his goodness and proclaim it even in the midst of your difficulties, if you won't cling to his goodness and his promises, let me tell you where you will end up and you may be already on the road. Bitterness. Bitterness. It's like the walls just start closing in. Life becomes dark. Life also becomes rather myopic. It gets very focused on you. And things just start closing in because a heart that will not cling to God's goodness starts just collapsing into bitterness. He says to his brothers, you know what you did? You meant it for evil, but God, he meant it for good. You see, sometimes in life, we kind of, it's like a loom, okay? And they're making this great tapestry. And we see life oftentimes from the bottom of the loom. And there's all these knots. And it looks like a huge mess. And things are going everywhere. And we kind of think that's what our life is. But life isn't all about knots and strings and threads going everywhere. You see, from the other side, from the God's perspective, he is weaving together the beautiful tapestry of history under his sovereignty. 
And all, there's not all, a lot of times that we can see it. But Genesis gives us a glimpse. God is working out his glorious, perfect plan. Even through all the knots and the hardships of life. Perhaps you want to think of it this way. God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. He did it with Joseph and his family. He did it with Jesus. Right? Jesus, perfect Son of God, eternally existent, comes, forces himself into humanity, lives a perfect life, fulfills all righteousness, never once sinned. What's the result? How do men respond to him? How does sinful man respond to a perfect Savior? We'll take him and we will beat him. We will pull his beard out. We will whip him and scourge him. And then we will, we will mock him. And then we will crucify him and allow him to die an excruciating death. And far greater than that, far worse than the excruciating pain of crucifixion, God actually pours the wrath, his just wrath against, of all, that he has against all sin upon Christ and he bears it willingly so that you and I can experience forgiveness and life in his resurrection. You see, God allowed that to happen. Why? The pain, the evil, the wickedness to accomplish salvation for his people. That's just the nature of God. And Joseph is articulating that. He says, you know what you did? Yeah, it's right. You meant it for evil, but God, he meant it for good. So he tells in verse 21, you know what? So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. I know you're afraid. I know you hardly even barely understand what I'm saying. He says, but you know what? I'm going to care for you. I will provide for you. Do not fear. And so he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. That word kindly, it literally means he spoke to their hearts. He spoke in such a way that their hearts got it. He spoke to them. He loves them. He cares for them. He is God's man trusting in God's goodness. And we can be the same as well. When we trust in God's goodness through the pain, in the pain, after the pain, it puts us in a position to be gracious to people. The people in our lives, even the people that have hurt us the most. It's a magnificent thought. And it's so possible in the goodness and the grace of God. Well, Joseph's life is about to come to an end. Verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt and he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's son. That, remember, that's his second born. But remember, Jacob, when he adopted the boys, he reversed their order. Also, the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. To, to have placed the child on your knee was, to, was the indication that this child belongs to me. And you see, this is how we want to live, and this is how we want to finish. It's a vision for experiencing the best of what God has for his life. It's to see, it's, it's more than us. It's about God continuing his work in future generations. Here's Joseph at the end of his life, and he's got his grandkids and his great-grandkids, and he's bouncing them on their knee, and he loves them, and he has had a full life. He has forgiven the people who have hurt him. He has blessed as many people as possible. He has fully yielded himself to God, and God has achieved magnificent purposes through his life. He is fully God's man. He is forgiven. He is blessed. He lives with grace. 
He is gracious. And when you're that in, in that position, you're free to love. And you see, it's more than you. It's like, man, God is going to continue his work in these little kids. And yeah, they're drooling and hitting me with their little toys. But I love these kids because they are the future. And so at the end of his life, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God, he will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised and oath to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. He says, I'm about to die. But God, he will be with you. He is going to accomplish this. He surely will take care of you. I I've just merely been a tool in his hands. And then he says in verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. I don't want to be buried here forever. Take my bones with you. And so verse 26, Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And you think, well, that's kind of a grim and sad way of ending this story, ending the first book in the Bible, uh, Joseph in a coffin. And yet, um, Joseph in a coffin in Egypt is a constant reminder to the Jewish people of what it looks like to have faith in God. He is just like, I'm just like a missile here. And I'm ready to be launched. And when God takes you out of here, and he will, I don't know when it'll be, you take my bones with me and you bury me in that promised land. And do you know what? That is exactly what they did. 400 years later, Moses leads an exodus of over a couple million uh, Israelites. Jacob's family has just blossomed into this huge nation. And do you know what they take with them? They take Joseph's coffin with them just as he had faith. In fact, in the book of Joshua, after they cross and they kind of make war and clean out a lot of Canaanites, they bury Joseph in Shechem. And you see, there couldn't be a more fitting end because even in his death, his life still speaks. It's like John Wesley said, God buries his workmen, but his work still continues. Friends, this is where we want to be. God has given us the life of Joseph so that we see what does it look like to have faith in God who is good and fulfills his promises. And let me give you a verse that you might want to put on your fridge. Romans 8.28. It says, For we know that God causes all things to work together for his good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is going to work out his perfect purposes in our lives. What do we do? We love him. We trust him. Let me tell you something I found helpful. Just verbally tell God, I trust in you and your goodnesses and your promises to me. I don't get it now, but I trust. I believe in you. I believe in your goodness. You see, we are transformed by God's presence when we are trusting in his goodness. And I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, quote, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. That's where we need to be. When you're slipping, when you're falling, life is getting dark, bitterness is coming on. Hold on to Jesus. 
cling on to the reality that God is good and he is faithful to his promises. He loves you. And though you're seeing the knots right now, he is performing and accomplishing his perfect tapestry. And you know how you move off to the side of the pool? By trusting in his goodness, goodness and his promises. And when we do, like Joseph, we live a life of faith, of knowing the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just this amazing chapter in the Bible that just clearly articulates that, yes, evil is taking place in our world and even in our lives, but you, you mean it for good. We don't always understand, but even in the midst of our storm, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you. And Father, for some people who have come here today who perhaps have never put their trust in Jesus Christ, Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn now from my sin, my self-centeredness. For now, I, I certainly see Jesus as one who has paid the penalty for my sin and truly offers me life in him. And I turn completely to you. And so, Father, I also pray for all of us that right now we would yield everything we have to you so that we might truly experience everything you have for us. Lord, thank you for your presence, that you are always with us. Lord, accomplish your purposes in our lives. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.